We need scale, but how? The biotech space will go through some growth pains, find out about scalability issues like bioreactor capacity, the supply of inputs and the lack of brains. Brains! <laughs> as well as lessons we can learn from vertical farming companies that are already a step or two further down the line. Join me for a chat with Elliot Schwartz. He is the lead scientist for cultivated meat at the Good Food Institute. If you're not familiar with precision fermentation yet, check out episode one of this biotech season where we explain a bunch of the terms. Otherwise, let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Uh, and I think Irina Gary was also pointing that out, that the challenge here is just the reversal of its higher quantity and at the same time lower price. So why are bioreactors an issue for scaling this technology? You know, for things like albumin, which are used in high quantities, you quickly run into needing millions of kilograms of proteins, which puts it basically at a higher level of production than the largest scale industrial enzymes that we produce today. And that's just to capture less than 1% of the meat market with cultured meat technologies. And if you bring that out further, you quickly run out of existing fermentation capacity on earth if you're producing just one input to one technology. And you can imagine that all these companies that are producing casein or whey proteins or heme, etc., I'm sure that those numbers break out similarly, where you're going to quickly outstrip the existing fermentation capacity for this. So I would consider the challenge is both in cultured meat and fermentation, precision fermentation, that is, that relies on any fermentation that relies on an actual fermenter or a steel tank, essentially, the capacity issue is the main bottleneck for these industries. And we're going to need a whole lot of new greenfield infrastructure to be established all around the world in order to have these technologies bring the impact that they can in terms of a decreased environmental footprint for food production, offsetting the growth of conventional animal meat production, etc. Another example, one that has been performed by McKinsey in the cultured meat space essentially says that to produce just about a half of percent of the conventional meat production volume, we would need about 10 to 20 times the amount of bioreactor capacity than the existing global pharmaceutical industry. So the quantities here in terms of the need for capacity is just enormous. How is this infrastructure going to be financed? A lot of the companies in this sector today have been funded by venture capital and the timelines for returns there and the risk mm. tolerance make sense for early stage companies. But a lot of infrastructure projects are really funded by debt, which is not what venture capital is. And so the alternative protein industry, these fermentation companies, these cultured meat companies, right now they're using that venture capital money and some other strategic partners to fund these initial pilot facilities that can go a long ways in terms of proving their technology and doing small scale commercial releases. But to build those next 
commercial scale facilities, the infrastructure that's needed, those are generally different forms of funders and that money comes from different sources. But the challenge I think is, is that a lot of these alternative protein companies are very small. They're early. They don't necessarily have the cash flow or the credit histories to work with debt or private equity investors. And so at least some of my colleagues at GFI feel that financing and getting these mechanisms in place for the industry is one of the biggest opportunities that we can do in terms of alleviating this oncoming bottleneck with infrastructure. Yeah, it seems to me that we have been very brainwashed by the model of SaaS company growth, and it's just not applicable to agri-food. One of the areas where I know seed in action is in vertical farming, and I'm always very interested to look at adjacent fields mm -hmm. because there's a lot of overlap and a lot of learnings. And from talking to people working in vertical farming, it turns out that they had extremely exponential expectations in terms of we will scale from having two facilities to having next year eight <laughs> to then 25 and then 250 or something like that in four years, just going through the roof. And this enthusiasm for we will just scale is now met by the reality of this is not just a farming business, this is a real estate business. The infrastructure needs to be built up. You need the permits. You need to um, abide security standards. And some of these things are not in one's control. So all of these timelines for the opening uh, deadlines of the vertical farms are being pushed back and back. And I can see that is an issue that will come up once investors realize, oh, oops, we invested in an asset-heavy business. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, I think that the way that you described that, it, it seems like there's a lot of parallels that are incoming for these fermentation companies and these cultured meat companies. Some of the projections you've seen consulting firms make for industry growth, and a lot of them are overly optimistic, mostly because mm -hmm. of this infrastructure issue as being one that is a little bit unexplained in terms of how these sort of curves are going to just take off. But at least with fermentation technologies, I guess the optimism there is that this is a mature technology. We do know how to produce very large quantities of microorganisms in hundreds of thousands a liter reactors. And so that's why I think we will see these fermentation companies be able to scale at least a lot faster than the cultured meat or the tissue engineering companies, because a lot of the scalability aspects of that technology are still remaining to be solved. There's a lot of issues and challenges from taking an animal cell culture from, let's say, 5,000 liters, which is maybe where the industry's at today, roughly, to 10,000 liters to 50,000 liters and beyond that. Just for context, we don't grow animal cells anywhere on the planet over 20,000 liters today. And to make the economics really start to make sense, you're going to need to go uh, a lot higher than that. I think one other example that goes back to what we were talking about before is also the scalability of the entire supply chain that will be needed to feed into these scaled industries. But you're going to need new facilities to produce all of the feedstock ingredients and process all those components that will go into those technologies. As just one example, there's a company called Amaris, which 
does precision fermentation of a lot of flavoring compounds and different ingredients in, in the food system. And earlier this year, they opened their largest facility in Brazil. This has, I, I don't know the exact capacity, but it's over a million liters, I believe, of capacity. And they actually opened that right next to a sugarcane farm, one of the largest sugarcane farms on earth, because you're going to need all of that sugar to feed these microorganisms to produce that. And that's just for one. So certainly if there's these precision fermentation facilities that are popping up all over the world, you're also going to run into supply chain sourcing challenges as well. Looking to get your alternative protein startup to the next level? The ProVeg Incubator, founded in 2018, was the world's first incubator focused on alternatives to animal-based products, including plant-based fermentation and cultured food products, everything we talk about in this season. The 12-week program will help you figure out your business model, go to market and open doors to retailers. With the ProVeg Incubator, you get up to 300,000 in funding and a seasoned mentor from the industry to help you. In Berlin, you can also use the ProVeg Incubator's co-working space, the test kitchen and their event space. You can join even if you are in the US or any other of the 149 countries Red to Green listeners are from. Alumni include companies like Mushlabs, KernTech, Remilk and Formo. Grab your chance to build a company for a better world. They're accepting applications all year round. Check out ProVegIncubator.com. ProVegIncubator.com. Do you want to found in the climate tech and food tech space? Or do you know somebody who is passionate about founding? Food Labs, a leading European food VC, is teaming up with their sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. You can receive pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, mentoring and advisory, and an access to a network which includes over 150 portfolio companies. Check it out by looking up foodlabs.com. Foodlabs.com. I would like to double down a bit on the bioreactor topic because uh, what you were saying about the current capacity in total that we have in terms of bioreactors is not even a um, hot drop on the stone of what's necessary to meet any kind of demand upcoming in the next decades. It is always very much portrayed as a pessimistic view and just considering what we were discussing before, that so far bioreactors were used for a different purpose, right? They were used for low quantity, high cost ingredients. Could you also maybe elaborate on how bioreactors will have to change to meet this new goal? Yeah, I mean, so you hear that a lot. We're making food here, we're not making pharmaceutical products. Now, I think the question is, there's a lot of different bioreactor technologies that have been developed in the past, but we haven't necessarily exhausted all of the possibilities. So that is an area that we'll see more research in and could actually be one of the biggest opportunities for new entrepreneurs to explore. And that doesn't necessarily mean creating an entire new bioreactor design but it could be tweaking the geometry of the bioreactor a little bit to allow for better oxygen distribution or nutrient distribution. Different impeller designs can affect that. You can even think about opportunities around, you hear like media recycling devices that would be part of the overall bioprocess that companies are designing so that you can have a more 
efficient or lower footprint. There's a lot of opportunity there in terms of making that more efficient and dropping costs as well. I've also come across the point that it's relatively easy to start prototyping things in one's basement, to have a small scale test area with your bioreactor. But once the next step comes, the next growth stage, there's a gap in availability of bioreactors. Either companies immediately need to scale to a degree that's not viable at that moment, or they need to find some kind of solution of building it on their own and build like a slightly bigger facility, which also is directly connected to a lot of fixed cost mm-hmm. upfront. Have you encountered this problem also from talking to startups and have you found any solutions? Yeah, so I mean, we definitely know that lead times for acquiring bioreactor vessels can be in the months to even up to like a year in some cases. A lot of companies are currently, I think, using, let's say, off-the-shelf models of bioreactors, but a lot of those have been consumed by the vaccine industry with Mm. COVID especially. So other companies, I think, are using more sort of bespoke engineering, so working with different engineering and bioreactor manufacturing firms to sort of create customized models and solutions for them. But I'm not necessarily sure that anyone has a very clear path to, we have a very clear and open roads and smooth sailing when it comes to acquiring bioreactors. So we have been nerding on bioreactors <laughs> quite a bit now. What are other areas that you see could be issues for the growth of the biotech space with a focus on precision fermentation and biomass fermentation? Yeah, I mean, aside from some of the general things to do with cell productivity, increasing yields or densities of cells, those sorts of things, some of the other considerations are work and labor force development. Do we have the actual training systems in place and educational systems in place to really be able to upscale the workforce for these companies as they scale up? And that's going to be location dependent. I just mentioned regulation, but that's something that will be a huge factor in terms of timelines to market and decision points made by companies when it comes to the product that they're using and the way that they're producing it. I mean, in the precision fermentation sector, it's a technology that luckily has been used, has a very long history of safe use in foods. But in some cases, you're producing proteins that you need to essentially prove is equivalent to the animal protein that we might already be consuming, or you might have to justify that the organism that you're genetically modifying by design is not present in the final product, or it might have to be an organism that has already a safe history of use in foods. And the timelines there could be much longer if you're using a novel organism, which a lot of these companies are. So that will determine the timelines to market, which of course will affect how much revenue companies can bring in on certain timelines, etc. And I guess another consideration here that is always foundational to these fields are the environmental impact and how you make decisions from a technology standpoint that will influence that. Sort of going back to the whole infrastructure challenge Facility location is also very important for influencing environmental impact. We know that essentially you're removing the animal from the production system, but you're replacing that animal's function with a bioreactor in the case of cultivated meat. That requires a lot of energy. And if we want to have this be a sustainable industry, then we're going to have these facilities running on renewables. So 
the selection there in terms of location can go a long way, as well as access to water sources that you might need for these facilities, distribution for the actual product or access or location to certain supply chain elements. Like we talked about this amorous production plant being right next to a sugarcane plant, but sugarcane doesn't grow everywhere on earth. So what are you going to do if you're a precision fermentation company moving into Canada. So those sorts of larger, higher order questions are things that we think about a lot and that we try to alleviate before they become issues. But certainly the access to these technologies on a global scale is what's going to be important. We don't want these technologies to wind up just feeding or offsetting some of the meat consumption in wealthy Western countries. And in order to do that, you have to have all of these elements come into place. Yeah. On a personal note, I would definitely recommend to reach out to people working at vertical farming companies that are scaling rapidly. There are so many learnings that could be applied to a growing industry with a different topic, but the similar challenges uh, at the end of the day. So Elliot, if you would have 50 million, where would you put that money? Yeah, it's an interesting question. At least me personally, I'll give you like two ways to spend this money. One is more of a personal technology crush. I think that for cultured meat, at least, I am really intrigued by the idea of growing cells in encapsulated biomaterials. So whether those are little tiny spheres or tubes or sheets, and then using those as modular pieces to construct meat products, especially structured meat products that rely heavily on automation, let's say the textile industry. I think those bioprocess design choices could be a huge opportunity for those that are trying to solve these scale-up challenges in cultivated meat. So some of that research and development has started. We are funding some projects that are along those lines, but I think more and more that will come into the fold. So outside of my own like personal love for certain ways to solve challenges. I think one of the things that we need is to form like consortia that have the proper incentive mechanisms in place that allow these competitor companies to come together at the same table, be able to be open and honest about sharing certain data are basically applied to solve shared challenges. So for instance, let's say maximizing cell proliferation in the cultured meat sector. Everyone is going to have to solve that challenge or get better at it. And a lot of the times in other industries, in oil and gas, in semiconductors, you have competitors that come together and they say, let's solve this together using our collective resources. I think that involves having a real physical pilot plant where you sort of have this test bed for technologies to actually be trialed. You have modeling going on that uses data from real companies, from real production runs at companies, etc. You have some of that happening in alternative proteins to some degree with you have this cultured food innovation hub in Switzerland that opened or that's due to open at the beginning of next year as one example of a pilot test bed facility for companies to come and visit. But we're going to need, I think, a lot more of those types of things. And that sounds like about $50 million that you'd need for that. Wow. Yeah. I've been talking to a couple of rather frustrated researchers from various companies in the space to say, at the level of research that we are, this is very basic ground research. You cannot have clear timelines and deadlines and we are doing this and this research to get this and this outcome. It's at such a fundamental level that one of them was saying, I cannot do my research this way. 
at the end of the day, if the companies are trying to individually do all the ground research, it doesn't matter how much funding they have. It will never be enough. But I guess one of the drivers of keeping them from doing so is the investors. Or it seems to me like that because the investors say, but we have these patents or we have these trade secrets and we want to keep that benefit for our companies. Is that also what you've been witnessing or is there some other main reason? Yeah, I mean, this is something that's come up, I think, since from the get-go. Can we have patent pools that promote sharing of technologies? Because it was pretty obvious that you're going to have this repetitive research going on in cell line development and cell culture media development at all these different companies all over the world. And a lot of that is IP driven and a lot of that is influenced by this lack of R&D foundation, as you mentioned, which I think is that's the biggest hole. The amount of public research dollars that went into cellular agriculture before the year 2020, let's say, it was less than $10 million or so, maybe $15, $20 million. And that's why a, a big part of our organization is trying to unlock more public dollar spending on cultivated meat, cellular agriculture, and other alternative protein technologies. Because trust me, there are a lot of researchers that want to get into this field, but not a lot of funding opportunities. That tide is beginning to shift in the Netherlands. They invested $65 million into this cellular agriculture ecosystem project. There's $10 million spent on cultivated meat and cellular agriculture in the United States. These larger grant opportunities are beginning to be funded by governments around the world. But we talk about trying to generate the level of government involvement as there was with like the space race. You want these governments to really be fighting over the opportunity to win on these technologies because it has so many implications for reaching climate goals, but also food security. And and I think that's beginning to happen a little bit. What is something that you've been hearing in the space that you disagree with or a controversial opinion that you have? I see this a lot because we are involved with academic researchers that get together and are applying for some of these larger grant opportunities. So we see what goes into those proposals, what are the talking points and the things that governments are asking for. I think we put too much energy into worrying about jobs for farmers and yeah. those that are in the, involved in the conventional meat production system, like what happens to those people if you have alternative protein technologies make up a considerable part of the labor market is not zero sum. There are always expanding and contracting opportunities in the labor market going on. And so just because one industry is decreasing doesn't mean that the job opportunities have flatlined. All the jobs in the alternative protein sector that exist today, most of them weren't around five years ago. And they don't necessarily need to be filled by reskilled farmers. And we don't necessarily have to figure out how to train farmers to operate bioreactors on their farms in order to have this technology work and to really force them into participating into this new system. You could go through a whole host of examples with cars and the horse and buggy and all, all, everything that technology develops, there's opportunities, there are jobs that are replaced, and there are new opportunities that arise. Well, actually, Elliot and I started out this interview by talking about how precision fermentation and cell-based meat are connected. But because that is quite specific, I put it at the end of this episode. 
We're talking about cultivated meat, meaning meat made through tissue engineering by growing cells instead of growing an entire cow, and how precision fermentation can be used or will be used to produce the inputs for this process. It's just interesting for me to see how these fields that we tend to talk about sometimes separately all at the end of the day interrelate. And if you're interested in that overall, there's a really good overview where you see plant-based fermentation and cell-based and how they interrelate. So how fermentation is used for cell-based products and plant-based and fermentation and fermentation and plant-based and all of these overlaps and different directions uh, where it's going. If you Google fermentation report, GFI, you will find it. So I hope you will enjoy this bonus part. I remember in one of the interviews you were saying that the efficiency of cellular agriculture is that it takes out the middle cow or the middle animal and it uses just the agricultural inputs to then create the actual end product. And I've also come across people criticizing that, well, but at the end of the day, it's still dependent on conventional agriculture to get the inputs. Now, for me, that's one of those classic debates that you have in all industries, where there's somebody promoting improvement and another person arguing for perfection and criticizing with, well, but this is not perfect. And it should be completely decoupled from conventional agriculture, which maybe gas fermentation can be, but most of these other techniques and technologies cannot. How do you see this argument? You're absolutely right. And for all of these technologies, you need inputs. You need raw materials to feed the microorganisms that you're using for, let's say, fermentation technologies, or you need the raw materials to be broken down into the cell culture media that is being used for cultivated meat. And this is actually where some of these technologies intersect, because right now, for the cell culture media production, so the feedstock that those animal cells are consuming, a lot of those inputs actually come from fermentation processes. So the vitamins that are used, the amino acids that are used, the growth factors and the recombinant proteins that are used, those all come from precision fermentation, which then looking at a a secondary level, those microorganisms are also consuming feedstocks, so sugar and amino acids, et cetera, nitrogen sources. And those all come from different sources of raw materials. What the industry is trying to figure out, especially on the cultivated meat side of things, is what are the best sources of those input materials and who's going to be creating them? So how is that future supply chain going to be generated? Because if you actually look at the cost and the environmental footprint of cultivated meat today, a lot of that is driven by the cell culture media, which in turn is driven by the fact that a lot of those ingredients can be produced by precision fermentation, which is a little bit more energy intensive than let's say taking a soybean and processing it down to its constituent amino acid components. There's a lot of, I think, work to be done to figure out the answers to those questions and and where in that puzzle or that sort of value chain the conventional farmers participate and to what extent. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like for a lot of investors, precision fermentation seems to be a safer bet than cellular agriculture or tissue engineering. And actually for people who have uh, not 
listen to our season one or season three and who maybe aren't familiar with the term, could you describe in what way specifically products of precision fermentation would be involved? In the biopharmaceutical industry, where a lot of this technology is derived from, they use really pure, high-quality inputs. And a lot of the ways to generate those today are from precision fermentation technologies. It has it in its name, right? It's, it's very precise at creating like single ingredients that can be used in foods, or in this case, in feedstocks for producing different foods. And so currently, a lot of amino acids, individual amino acids, that is vitamins and growth factors are recombinant proteins that we add to the cell culture media to feed those cells. Those are produced through fermentation technologies today. But the industry in general, the tissue engineering or cultured meat industry wants to move away from that because it is more costly to do it that way and it's more environmentally expensive. And so a lot of the research now is figuring out how can we produce these inputs in a sort of food grade way. So using a sort of less pure or more crude ingredient that can save on costs. Yeah, but I find it interesting that the cultivated meat startups want to rely on plant-based sources because they will be more cheap. And at the same time, a lot of precision fermentation companies are arguing we will actually reach price parity with our product, or some of them even say it will be even cheaper than the original ingredient. So how does that fit? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, I think there will be variation in how efficiently companies can move down that cost curve depending on what protein that they are producing and I guess what organism they're using to do that. But the companies that I talk to, a lot of them say it doesn't necessarily matter what protein we're producing. We can produce them all for this low cost. Now, I think that is easier said than done. And a lot of this is dependent on economies of scale on its final use case. So for precision fermentation, because some of these proteins that they're producing are highly functional ingredients in final food products, they can be used at less than 1% of the final product, like Impossible's heme protein, for instance. Even if that heme costs a lot to produce, you're using so little of it that you can make sense from a cost perspective in a final product. So first of all, what is heme? If you think about what makes meat taste like meat, it is this irony flavor that you get, especially if you think about blood. Of course, plant-based products don't usually have heme in them, except Impossible Foods. The US plant-based company has first started extracting heme from the nodules from the roots of soy. But to get this protein, soy legemoglobin, which creates the feeling that the plant-based burger is bleeding like a real burger, is quite tricky. So they started using precision fermentation by genetically engineering a yeast strain called Pichia pastoris. Interestingly, there's another company called Motif Foodworks, which has created an ingredient that they call Hemami. It is identical to the bovine myoglobin, so the heme that you will find in the muscles of cows. Moti Foodworks uses the same yeast strain, engineered in a different way. And now these two companies are in quite a legal battle regarding patents and their intellectual property. 
in Europe, Impossible Foods is not very well known because you actually cannot get their products here. The soy protein that is used in Impossible Foods burgers is derived from GMO soy. Now, for an input into another food process, in the case of using recombinant protein or growth factor for cultured meat, sometimes that is a little bit more difficult to, to justify. Actually, one of the analyses that I've been working on internally at GFI that will be out in the fall of this year is essentially asking the question, what quantity of growth factors does the industry need to reach a certain scale? So let's say if cultured meat was 1% of the total meat market, how much of individual proteins would need to be produced? And what you get when you run those numbers is that for growth factors, because we use so little of it in the cell culture media, you can actually justify a fairly high cost of production for individual growth factors. So let's say if the precision fermentation industry is trying to reach $10 per kilogram for individual proteins that feed into final food products, then you could produce and justify, I think, growth factor costs around $10,000 to $100,000 per kilogram to feed into the cultured meat industry. Now, that's not true for all proteins. So certain proteins like insulin or transferrin and albumin proteins that play really important roles in signaling to cells or delivering different nutrients to cells in the media, we use them at much higher quantities. And to justify their use as recombinant proteins produced from precision fermentation, we're talking about costs in some cases that would have to be as low as $10 per kilogram. And this is why I think the industry and we are exploring other ways of sourcing those proteins from plants. So a lot of plants have different ortholog proteins or similar proteins that have a similar function as their animal counterparts. And so there's research that we are funding that will look into that question so that it's essentially trying to figure out what are the best use cases for precision fermentation and what are the best use cases for sourcing all of these different ingredients. Think of one fellow nerd who would appreciate this episode. It could be a colleague of yours, a friend, or a random person on LinkedIn. Think of one person that would like to learn about bioreactors and scalability challenges of the biotech space. Well, if you want to support Red to Green, then just forward them this episode. It takes 15 to 30 seconds, and it helps a great deal to keep Red to Green going. Thanks to Celeste Gupta, our senior audio editor, Nikhil Menon for doing a second review, Robert Griffin for tinkering with the freaking website all the time, <laughs> and Cherry Sussex for supporting with industry research. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green.